Good morning to all of you. Our passage this morning is a serious one, and it begins, There was a rich man who had clothed himself in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his stores. This is a sobering passage in scripture about two men with two very different destinations, two very different lives. At the age of 72, Tim Keller died from pancreatic cancer. And some of his final words that are recorded are this. He said, I'm thankful for the time God has given me, but I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus. That's incredible. That's a wonderful testimony, but not all of us have that kind of confidence, I suspect, when we think about our own death. All of us are going to die, make no mistake about that. Jesus' teaching in this particular passage about the rich man and Lazarus is well known. Is it a parable? Is it a story about two real people? I don't know, and it doesn't matter for the point that we are making this morning. Whether it is a parable or whether it is a story about two real men, the fundamental theological affirmations, as Bach says, about the afterlife remain the same. Once one receives his or her judgment, you cannot change that position for eternity. And that's the point that I think Jesus wants us to understand as he told it to people who are listening to him who didn't believe what he was saying. John Calvin says this summary statement about this particular passage, and I think it's quite instructive for us to ponder before we begin our first thought. He says this, The Lord is painting a picture which represents the condition of the future life in a way that we can understand. The sum of it is that believing souls, when they leave the body, lead a joyful and blessed life outside the world but that for the reprobate, the person that does not believe in Jesus, are prepared terrifying torments which can no more be conceived by our minds than can the infinite glory of God. That is an extremely profound and wise statement. In our congregation, we believe that heaven is real, we believe that hell is real, and that you will end up in one or the other, and that's that's why this is such a challenging passage. We do not want anyone here today to go to hell. I want everyone to go to heaven. Our first thought this morning is a question. How are you living your life? We will encounter a short description of a rich man. It's not sin to be rich. Abraham was rich and he's going to appear later. But it's a sin to love your riches. It's a sin to trust in your riches. And Jesus begins by talking about two men, two very different men. In Luke chapter 16, verse 19, we see that a rich man lived for himself in great luxury. Verse 19 says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. We know already three things about him, don't we? He was rich. He had beautiful clothes, and he had wonderful food. I mean, just imagine his wardrobe. 
If some of this was made from wool, what Joel Green says, the process by which wool was fold in a basin, right? It's expensive and it's time-consuming, but he could afford it. Clothing colored in a kind of Tyrian purple dye was a symbol of luxury. I mean, even well-off people wore white, but this guy has white and purple. I mean, he is living in his clothing, represents opulence and an extreme luxury. The rich man appears to be dressed in the finest finest clothes that money could buy. One commentator noted that even his undergarments or his underwear were linen garments from Egypt. I mean, he was comfortable, but he was selfish and he was self-indulgent and he uses his riches wrongly and he is a religious man. Brothers and sisters, this is a message for people who believe in God and carry their Bibles. He knew the scriptures, I'm, I'm convinced of that. But he didn't believe the scriptures. He heard a lot about God and even would have said, I believe a lot about God. I'm going to heaven when I die. He had wonderful clothes and he had wonderful food, the best food perhaps that money could buy in that day. He had an abundance of food. I mean, if you're well off and you have a feast every now and then throughout the year, I mean, this guy could afford to have a feast every day of his life. There was just food flowing everywhere. One of the church fathers says he provoked gluttony. Imagine all of the friends and the parties he had to come over to my house and we're going to have a wonderful cookout. He wasn't just rich, he was filthy rich. And it would be quite easy to think to yourself, the blessing of God is upon this man's life. He has everything. But then the next man is, is described in verses 20 through 22. Lazarus was a poor beggar who suffered in misery. Verse 20 says, And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his Soars right there in plain sight. He doesn't even have to go very far. Look out his window and there is a man named Lazarus and he needs help and he has money to help him. He's not short on cash. He doesn't even have to drive anywhere, go anywhere. Right there in front of him, a man in great need. He could have showed him mercy. This passage is the opposite of the parable of the Good Samaritan, isn't it? It's tragic. In contrast to the rich man, Lazarus, the poor man, is pathetic and pitiable. And yet, we know his name, but we are never given the name of the rich man. Now, why is that? There there are different reasons given for that, and I like what Augustine says, because the poor man, because of his faith, was important to God. Heaven won't forget him. And his name is written in the book of life. The rich man's name is not written in the book of life. And in the, in the book of Exodus, when you leave a name out, that is a very significant... We don't know the name of the Pharaoh, but we know the name of the midwives. It's, it's to communicate to us what is important to God. And, and that fits the context of this portion of Luke. Maybe the rich man thought to himself, hey, I'm actually being pretty merciful here. I'm not evicting him. I'm letting him sit on my sidewalk. I mean, I'm a good guy. This wealthy man had a gate, a sign of a beautiful home, an estate perhaps, even a mansion. 
Lazarus does not have a home. And the Greek word there, he's kind of just placed there, thrown down. He can't even get there by himself. Someone had to carry him there. And that is why many people believe he was a cripple. He was just sitting there, helpless, hungry, starving. It is a miserable sight for a human being to experience. We don't know how Lazarus got there specifically. We don't know the names of the people that dropped him there. We are not told how he came to trust in the Lord. What we are told is what Jesus wants us to know is that the only person, right, out of all the peoples of the world, there was one man that was in a position, in a perfect position to help him. And it was an easy layup. It was a home run, right, a slow pitch. And the rich man refused to help Lazarus. Again, that Greek word behind the word gate refers to an ornamental gate, which symbolizes an entrance to a kind of palace, a beautiful home. The rich man was very selfish in the way that he used his finances. During his life, he shows absolutely no care or concern for poor suffering Lazarus. How many times did he leave out of that gate and come back into that gate probably thousands of times, and he may have never spoken to Lazarus. But he knew he was there. He has really no excuses, does he? Riken says every day he had a chance to feed the hungry, our scripture passage. Every day he had a chance to dress the naked and heal the sick. But he never invited the poor man over for dinner, apparently never even thought to give him any of the leftovers. Never gave him any medical treatment. He could have easily done it, and it wouldn't have even cost him, and he doesn't do it. He refused to do that. You might want to look at verse 9 of this chapter, because it is connected. In other words, he did not use his earthly wealth to make an eternal friend. That's not salvation by works at all. Verse 9 in the New Living Translation says, And I tell you, make friends for yourself by how you see how you use worldly wealth so that when it runs out, you will be welcomed into the eternal homes. When it's gone, you will have a place to go for eternity. And the rich man didn't do that. His sin is not in being rich. His sin is being greedy. He wouldn't share. 1 John 3, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity, this is a fellow Jewish person. There is no question he was supposed to help him, right? You see someone in need but has no pity, no compassion in them. How can the love, the love of God, which is the vertical command, the first commandment is always connected right horizontally to the second commandment of how we love our neighbor. James chapter 2, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? We have no information that Lazarus even asked for food. We're not told that. He just simply desired some of the crumbs that came from his table, but he was denied that. He is treated worse than an animal. And dogs and unclean creatures are the only companions that he has. I mean, it's hard. I I didn't realize this until I read this, but it's hard to imagine in our minds which man is, is in a more pitiable state. I always thought it's Lazarus, but it's the rich man, isn't it? What a contrast between two men in this story, this passage, this parable that Jesus 
describes the rich man has many friends. Lazarus apparently has no friends in his life. The only friends in his life are the street dogs. That appears to be the only consolation in his open wounds in his body. The dogs come and lick his sores, and that, that is his comfort in life. I wouldn't want to live a life like that, would you? Again, Cyril, one of the church fathers, says, but the rich man was more cruel than the dogs. And I didn't think of that. For he felt neither sympathy for him nor compassion. The dogs did not attack or bite Lazarus, but they showed more sympathy as they licked his sores. Outdone by a a street dog in showing compassion? That rich man had great comfort in his life, and Lazarus had very little of that in his life. Of course, if you're a Hebrew or a Jewish person and you are being licked by a dog, you're in a state of being ceremonially unclean. Uh, that's the reason why I can't help that guy. He's, he's ceremonially unclean. Our second thought this morning, are you prepared to die? Did the rich man assume that he would go to heaven when he died? Or that he would be in Abraham's bosom? I suspect he did. Not only do we have a description in the first few verses of two different men, but now we have a description, a terrible description, one good and one bad, of two destinations. And in this situation, death brings about a complete reversal for both men. After his death, Lazarus was comforted. In verse 22 at the beginning, a beautiful short statement. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. That's all we are told. After Lazarus died, after all of that suffering, the angels of God carried Lazarus, his soul, to the bosom of Abraham. I mean, that that is a beautiful statement. It is short, but it's quite touching. It's quite moving in this picture of God's love for Lazarus. Remember that passage in the Bible from Psalm 116, 15, that we often read at funerals when we have to say goodbye to God's people, the ones that we love. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Does not Romans 4.11 teach us that Abraham is the father of all who believe? It does, doesn't it? It's perfectly appropriate that we were, we are about to read about this, this Abraham. Angels take the poor man to Abraham's side. That, that makes perfect sense when we, when we think about that. A wonderful picture of blessing and salvation by grace. Abraham was the first patriarch to demonstrate faith in God's promise. Abraham was a rich man who learned to use his riches to the glory of God. The rich man in this passage did not love Lazarus. He does not care about the poor, but Abraham loved the poor. The rich man didn't. We are not told how Lazarus came to believe in the promises of salvation, but he did. We are not told how Lazarus died. Did he even have a funeral? Did he die of starvation? He probably died lonely. Did he have a funeral? We don't know, but his terrible life of suffering, it came to an end, and then the angels of God carried Lazarus to the side of Abraham, to Abraham's bosom. Everyone else may have forgotten about Lazarus, but God didn't forget about him. By the way, you know the meaning of the, of the, of the name Lazarus? 
It means God has helped. I mean, during his life, it looked like God had forgotten him in his poverty and in his misery and in all of his suffering and hunger. And yet in his death, we realize that God really did help him, didn't he? God brought him into paradise, into the afterlife. Lazarus, a poor man of faith, was appropriately received into paradise by Abraham, a man who was rich and also rich in faith. Lazarus, the poor beggar who had starved and suffered so much of his earthly life, he now finds himself in the consolations of heaven. After a life of misery and loneliness, Lazarus, right, his situation has been reversed. He is comforted in the afterlife. It is a short but beautiful and intimate picture of the fellowship that God's people will have with his people. But there is also a greater joy since Jesus Christ is risen. When Jesus told this story or this this parable, this incident, he had not yet risen from the dead. But now that Jesus Christ is risen, we remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.8, For to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. And that to me is comforting as we live in a fallen world and our only hope is salvation in the, in the great work that Jesus Christ has accomplished for those that believe in him. When a believer in Christ dies today, they go into the presence of Jesus Christ. Lazarus couldn't do that because Christ wasn't risen. After his death, the rich man was tormented. And suddenly in hell, he begins to pray. He begins to be concerned about evangelism in hell. It's incredibly ironic as we read these final verses. In verse 22b to 24, the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame." Lazarus, who during his lifetime lived outside of the gate, now in the afterlife is inside the gate with God. And the rich man who lived inside the gate of a beautiful home with all of his treasures in life, he now finds himself permanently outside the gate, away from the presence of God and under condemnation forever. That is so sobering to even think about. And I know that our tendency, even as Christians, is to think that we're never going to die. I'm never going to have to deal with that. I'll go to somebody else's funeral, but I'm not going to die. Naturally, we read read this passage and we start asking questions. What what is Hades? Or is, is Abraham and Lazarus? I mean, what are they doing together in Hades? I mean, is there some kind of a difference here? Or, or even people ask questions like, does this mean that the dead that don't believe in the promises of God can communicate with those that can, that have believed? That isn't the point of the story. Hades is not the biblical term for hell. In many ways, it's just the precursor that becomes hell. The description of the rich man in Hades and the suffering he experienced there, it seems to surely guarantee that if you end up in that part of Hades, you are going to hell. And we don't want anyone to go to hell. No one in this room should ever want anyone, any human being to go to hell. 
You should want every human being on the face of the earth to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Doesn't God desire the salvation of all men? Do you think he delights in the death of the wicked who haven't turned to him? He will be glorified in their judgment. I'm not saying that. It was J.C. Ryle that pointed out, J.C. Ryle pointed out something I think that was quite interesting. He says there's something in this story or this passage that is different in the Bible. It's the only passage that he knew of that describes the reaction of an unconverted person after his death. The rich man feasted on earth, but Lazarus now feasts in heaven as his soul finds rest in the bosom of Abraham. On earth, Lazarus was a poor beggar. Who is the beggar now? The rich man is now a beggar. And of course, the very fact that he can identify Abraham in the afterlife and he knows, oh, that's Lazarus, he's incriminating himself. He is telling all of us, I I knew about all of his problems when I lived in that beautiful house and in all of those nice clothes and all of that money and I never helped him. I knew he was suffering outside of my gate and I didn't do anything. The more the rich man speaks, the more he incriminates him and blames God for his predicament. The rich man who denied Lazarus mercy When he could have easily provided it, now cries out, I now need mercy. Please help me. One of the tragic ironies of the rich man's request to Abraham is that during his lifetime, Abraham showed hospitality to strangers, did he not? Whereas the rich man never showed that to Lazarus. The one who asked for mercy never gave it. His first plea was for just a single drop of water. I mean, that's not a big request, is it? It's not a bottle of water. It's not a case of water. I just want a single drop of water because it is so terrible in the torment of the flame. What a request. The language of torment is behind that request. Jesus has given us one of the clearest examples of what it looks like for an individual person being tormented consciously after death, who did not believe in God's promises for salvation. He is fully conscious in his suffering. And you know what's tragic? Even though he is now in the flames, his attitude towards Lazarus has not changed. He doesn't care about Lazarus. He treats Lazarus as if he is still his servant boy to run his errands. He has not learned the truth of the gospel even in hell. And he knows he cannot get out. That is a tragic irony of this passage. You think Abraham is going to give him that drop of water? I mean, you could use a little eyedropper, couldn't you? That's not a big request, is it? I mean, Abraham, the guy that helped strangers, surely he's going to honor this request. It's a little one. And Abraham does not show hospitality to the man in hell. He cannot, I I believe. In verse 25, the first answer comes, but Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And so that seemingly simple request for a drop of water, Abraham says it's denied. I'm not going to do that for you. 
Again, not everything in this passage is meant to to be understood with a total precision and accuracy when we think about the afterlife of heaven and hell. I don't think that there's going to be a conversation like that literally between people who die and go to hell and those that die and go to heaven, even even if they're still in Hades. I don't think that's why Jesus told the passage. I don't think that the rich man has a literal tongue there because it's his soul there. Jesus is trying to make an important point about once a person is in that place, it's forever and they are going to be consciously judged by God and it's going to be a a, a torment forever and ever and ever. That's a frightening reality. The rich man's request to get a drop of water for his tongue to alleviate his suffering is probably not meant to be understood in a literal fashion. And that makes sense to me. Abraham's second answer is found in verse 26. And besides all these between you and us, and this is the scary point of the scriptures, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. That is a terribly sobering statement of truth by Jesus himself. Abraham is saying it, but Jesus is telling the story. That great chasm between the unbelieving wicked and the unbelieving righteous, it's fixed for eternity. It's permanent. It's forever. It cannot be reversed and it cannot be undone. The rich man has not... He has no opportunity, a second opportunity to believe in the gospel. It's too late. His terrible, tormented, agonizing destiny, it cannot be any different from this point. C.S. Lewis walked by a gravestone, I'm told, and an atheist was buried there. And on the words of the gravestone, the atheist had someone put, all dressed up and nowhere to go. And Lewis said, you know what, I just wish that was true, but that's not true, and that man knows it's not true. Everyone is going somewhere when they die, and you are either going to heaven or you're going to hell. Again, with biblical insight, J.C. Rowell notes the change that did happen in the mind of the rich man. Some change happens. He now sees the truth. He now knows the truth. He understands a hundred things that he didn't know or he chose to be blind to in his life. And he says, the unbelieving dead who are in Hades and later in hell, they will discover that like Esau, they have bartered away eternal happiness for a mere bowl of soup. There is no skepticism in hell, is there? There is no unbelief in hell after death. It is a wise saying of an old pastor, he says, it says this, hell is nothing more than truth known too late. That's a good statement. It makes me think about this issue more deeply. John MacArthur said this, quote, Satan continues his efforts to make sin less offensive, heaven less appealing, hell less horrific, and the gospel less urgent. Jesus does not do that in this passage, does he? He does the opposite of that, which is good. And our third question this morning, where will you spend eternity? Hades anticipates the greater judgment of hell, doesn't it? 
whatever we understand about Hades, whatever Jesus meant by that, if when people died before the resurrection of Christ, they all went to the same area, but there's a, a compartment for those that believe in the promises of God and those that do not believe in the promises of God, that may have been just a holding area until Jesus rises from the dead. And those who are in the portion of Abraham's bosom or paradise, they are taken to heaven to be with the Lord. In Revelation 20, verse 14, we read that death and Hades will one day when Christ returns be thrown into the lake of fire that is hell. A rich man's prayer is religious. This rich man's prayer is religious, and it's also quite ironic. And we see this in verses 27 through 28. He said, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Now, could God have sent Lazarus back to warn those brothers? He sure could have, couldn't he, if he wanted to. But that isn't what Abraham says he can do at this point. He now appears to be quite a religious man. He, he has no problem believing in God. He not only knows who Abraham is, but he calls him his father. He had, an outer, he had an external religion like the Pharisees of his day, but he did not have that heart religion that God expected of him. Riken says the horrors of Hades or hell were so awful that suddenly the rich man was interested in missionary work. And that's not a genuine missionary work, is it? He is still acting selfish. He only cares about himself and his family members. He doesn't care about the lost of the world. He's just as selfish now as he was in life. If anything, he's more selfish. I mean, he, because I'm rich, I get a special favor. Isn't that how it works? And Abraham says, no, that is not how it works. We aren't doing a missionary run for you and your family. You don't get special treatment just because you are rich. He still thinks like an unbelieving rich man who believes that he deserves special treatment. And as Darrell Bach and many others have noted, he still treats Lazarus with nothing but contempt. Lazarus is beneath him. Send Lazarus, my little errand boy, to go warn my family members. It reveals he's still stuck in his pride. He may have some regrets that he's there, but he doesn't have a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and salvation. He cannot have that. He thinks he's superior to Lazarus. The rich man's request reveals his failure to understand that God's word had all of the answers for the questions that he is asking and now wanting Lazarus to do. He's probably not used to hearing the word no, is he? He was probably used in his, li- in his lifetime to having his own way when he made something a request. He knows that his fate is sealed forever. He's now asking for his brothers. Perhaps he knows that there are no second chances better than many people who are living today. Hebrews 9.27 is another sobering reminder. It is appointed for a man or a woman or a person to die once and after that comes judgment. There are no second chances to believe in Jesus Christ if you die in unbelief. And that is why this is an urgent warning to come to Jesus Christ today to find the only safe place from sin. 
Jesus is the ultimate safe place, isn't he? If you died today, do you know where you would spend eternity? Children, do you know that? I believe many of you here do know that answer because God has saved you. And so we have a certain joy and expectation in reading that Lazarus, when he died, went to the bosom of Abraham. The rich man has one more request. And it's another example, perhaps, of his selfishness and pride. The rich man is without excuse. Abraham has already told the rich man that for him, his eternal destiny is fixed. It cannot be undone. It cannot be reversed. It's an awful reality. The rich man is without excuse. Now Abraham gives him another answer to the request, can you go evangelize my brothers? Father Abraham offers a sobering answer for us to ponder in verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. They have the old, what we know as the Old Testament. Abraham, a man who showed mercy to strangers, and did he not show mercy to Sodom? You would think that he could show mercy to this guy too, but he doesn't do that. That alone is sobering to me to think about that, that, that seriously. If Abraham could not show mercy to this man in hell, that testifies to the seriousness of our sin and rejecting God and rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what age you are, does it? In fact, if anything, everyone in this room is more accountable than the rich man because we have greater revelation than he had. If he was suffering that bad and you reject Jesus Christ and go to hell, you're going to suffer worse than him. Yes, there are degrees of punishment in hell. We don't want anyone to go there. We want you to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the means that God has provided for sinners of this world. But during his lifetime, he ignored Moses and the prophets. Some said he laughed at Moses and the prophets, a religious man. He had a Bible, but it was always on the shelf. He didn't read it. And I think what Jesus is saying here is, look, all of the answers are there in Moses and the prophets. And if you ignore Moses, if you ignore the prophets, you're certainly going to ignore Jesus. The rich man's request regarding his brothers turns out to be a request that actually undermines the power of God's word to give us the answers in life. And whether you know it or not, the rich man is attacking the sufficiency of scriptures. It's like, God, the scriptures are not sufficient for me because I'm rich. I need something else. I need a special miracle. And they're going to believe if you send Lazarus a special sign. But the scriptures, no, that's not enough. And Abraham is flatly refusing that because Abraham knows that the sufficiency of Scripture is true. The answer to our human dilemma of being sinful and needing salvation is found in the Scriptures and it cannot be added to. If someone did rise from the dead and go back and talk to those five brothers, they couldn't say anything more than is already in Scripture. And that's why Abraham is saying this. It's actually a profound reply that Abraham gives. Abraham responds in a sense saying, it's completely unnecessary to make that request. They already have all of the information that they could ever need, but they're not accessing it. They're not interested in looking at what God has provided in his word. 
It isn't more evidence that people need. It's already there in what we now call the scriptures. It's all there. A dead person who was brought back to life could, could do no better, tell nothing more than the Bible, than what the Bible already contains. No one who ends up in hell will ever have any excuse for why they're there. Especially today, right? Now that Jesus Christ is risen and you came today. In hell, no one is treated unfairly and no one is tortured. It's all because of the justice of God. That's how serious our sin is and that's how holy God is. But God provided a way, a solution. And so the rich man's plea was denied. His prayers were not answered in hell because hell has no exit. Verse 30 and 31, our final two verses. And he said, no, Father Abraham, he, he's not, he won't accept the answer. He, this guy is persistent, I'll give him that. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. I mean, here is an unbelieving human being in hell telling us that repentance is necessary for salvation. What an apologetic for us that are living And he, Abraham, said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You know, the the terrible irony of this passage is that another man named Lazarus was risen from the dead. It wasn't a resurrection like Jesus, but he was brought back to life. And what was the reaction when people that opposed Jesus heard that Lazarus had come back to life? Did it soften their hearts to believe more? No, in their Pharaoh-like hearts, they resisted even more the message of revelation they'd received, and then they determined to kill Lazarus and then kill Jesus. And the greater tragedy is that even when Jesus himself rose from the dead, they tried to cover it up. It did not lead to greater faith or their accepting the gospel. It hardened their hearts. It's, It's tragic. It's sad. C.S. Lewis said the safest road to hell is a gradual one. You know, the one with no bumps, no turns, just that slow, that slow walk to hell. That's how you get there. Nothing's wrong. Jesus said, what, for what shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Thomas Goodwin made a comment about some of these the comments of Jesus here, and he talks about the the damned soul that is in hell will never outlive misery. There is never a break in hell. In other words, you don't get time off in hell. He says the damned will despair because there is no end to the wrath of the living God. This is why we all why we all reason in the world. And I'll summarize it. This is why we tell you about Jesus Christ because we don't want you to suffer that. If a human being really knew what hell was like, they would flee to Christ as fast as they could. And they said, I believe, I confess my sins. I I ask God to save me in Jesus Christ. Jesus suffered on the cross so that you might escape hell and gain heaven. Death is coming to all of us. A few decades ago, Robert Harris murdered two teenage boys and he was sentenced to death. And before he died, he's not a believer. His final words were this, you can be a king or a street sweeper, but everyone dances with the grim reaper. He doesn't have any hope in that statement, but he has a reality. All of us are going to die. 
And where we go is, is determined by what our relationship to Jesus Christ in this life was. Did I believe in him or did I not believe in him? And so in the end, there are really only two kinds of people who reach two different kinds, two different kinds of, of destinations. There, there is heaven and there is hell. It's a sobering passage from Jesus that we've heard this morning. But today, no one here looking at me is dead yet. And today is another opportunity for you to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we would be so thankful to God if you come and believe today. Today is a day of salvation. God's grace can save sinners today just as he could save sinners throughout all of biblical history. Jesus is the way of escape and he came into this world to save sinners. And so we warn you today so that you will not have to experience what the, what the rich man experienced in his day. God helped Lazarus, and the one who helped Lazarus still helps people who call out to his son for salvation today. Heaven and hell, there are only two options. If you went to a doctor and the doctor discovered you had a terminal illness and hid it from you, would you love your doctor? And so spiritually speaking, you've come to church today and we've told you the truth about heaven and hell. And we do that because we love you. And we do not want you to suffer under this just judgment of God. Believe in Jesus. We want you to join with Lazarus, Abraham, and Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus Christ before it's too late. The wrath of God is coming. Believe in Jesus as the one who took the curse of God's wrath for you. Confess to God that you are a sinner and that you know you have fallen from the glory of God. Cry out to God to save you. If you cry out to God to save you and it's sincere, God will save you. Declare it with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And Paul says, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And what? You will be saved. Romans ten eleven. God delights in saving sinners. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your provision for heaven through Jesus Christ, your Son. Thank you for every person here today that is trusting in Jesus Christ for his or her salvation and encourage them to continue their walk with you. And Father, we pray that you would save anyone here today that has not yet believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that today might be the day of their salvation. Lord, we thank you for these words of your Son. We ask you to glorify your word today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.